Hey friends, Marthame here, host of AIJ Cast. We will be back next week with another brand new episode featuring strategic play consultant Gary Ware. In the meantime, we share this bonus episode with you. Our good friend and frequent co-collaborator Amina McIntyre and I had the chance to co-preach at Northwest Presbyterian Church here in Atlanta on Sunday, August 1st. And so we'd like to share that sermon with you. By the way, the sermon starts off with a message to the children and then pivots to the sermon itself. We'll see you next week. So I want to share a story, and it's about the time that my wife and I lived in a place that's called Israel-Palestine. Now, Israel-Palestine is the place where many of the stories that we read about Jesus took place in the Bible. In that land, there's a small village called Burkin. It was near where I lived, Burkin, B-U-R-Q-I-N. And it's a town of about 10,000 people today, of whom about 200 are Christian, the rest of them are Muslim, and then there is this small Christian minority. And there's a church for those Christians, and it is built on the site where the story that we're going to read in our Bible verse today comes from. Now, I'll tell the story as it was told to me there in that village. There was a cave, and in this cave, there were 10 people kept because they had this dangerous skin disease called leprosy. And they were kept there in the cave to keep everyone safe. It was kind of a quarantine. Does that word sound familiar to us these days? And there was a hole in the top of the cave, and the people of the village would lower food and water down through the hole to the people there in the cave to feed them. So this is the situation where Jesus passes through this village, and he is walking down from a city called Nazareth that's up in the north. It's not really that big of a city, but it's a city. And he's going down towards Jerusalem in the south, and he passes right through this town, through Burkin, and right past this cave. So the people with leprosy, they may have heard something through the village resonating about this person, Jesus, coming through. And they start to call out to Jesus from the cave, asking for his help. And when they do, the wall of the cave opens up and they're able to come out and to shout to him and they approach him asking for his healing. And he does. And so in some ways this story is about how Jesus cares about us and how powerful he is. So then the ten people are healed and they go away celebrating. Seems like a natural response, right? Only one of them actually bothers to say thank you to Jesus, and the one that does is from a group of people known as the Samaritans. And this is pretty surprising that this Samaritan would thank Jesus because at the time, most of the people would have thought of Samaritans as less than everybody else. So in some ways, this is also a story about how we need to treat everyone with mutual respect regardless of what society tells us about them. Now, if you go to Burkine today, you can see what used to be that cave with the hole in the top. It's now closed up, but it's still there. And it's now part of the church that these 200-some-odd Christians go to worship in regularly. So every time they are there, they just have to look over to the side. If you imagine where you're sitting, and if you looked over there and there was a cave where this story of Jesus took place, 
you can be reminded about this amazing thing, about how powerful and caring Jesus is, and about how we need to treat everyone with that kind of mutual respect, regardless of what society says. And for me, on top of all of that, this story is also about remembering that there are Christians in other parts of the world, and particularly this story, Christians who have been there much, much, much longer than my family has been where it is. And it's because of them and because of the stories that they have told that we even know about how powerful and caring Jesus is, about how we are supposed to treat everyone with mutual respect. And that makes me grateful. So you may have noticed, Amina, that the story that I told earlier had some details that the Bible story left out, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. Luke doesn't talk about a cave or a quarantine or a wall opening up miraculously, but the story doesn't preclude. That still could have happened, right? And right. it's possible, and I would say even likely, because there's not there are places in the Holy Land where there are competing sites where two different groups say this is where it happened. Nobody else wants to be the place where the lepers were. So this pretty much has claim on that spot, right? Mm -hmm. And it's very likely because of its location that this is where Jesus passed because the church overlooks a valley, and those were the best paths for traveling were valleys. If there was shade when it was too hot, when the winds were blowing uh, and it was getting cold, then you would be a little warmer down there. You had water, you had access to water, and you had a relatively flat walking surface. So um, just to kind of put it in the modern context, because it helps to know where places are, you've got Nazareth up in the north in the Galilee, which is this predominantly Arab city in modern-day Israel. And then you head south to Jerusalem. If you took the most direct route, it would take you right through the West Bank. Right. And the northernmost city in the West Bank is Janine. And just to the west of it, about three miles, is the village of Burkine. And that church that I talked about with the 200 people is predominantly Eastern Orthodox. Well, it is Eastern Orthodox, I should say. People tend to have a claim on things over there. Not that different from here. Right. Uh, but it's the oldest form, historically and denominationally speaking, of Christianity, Eastern Orthodoxy. And the cave exists as kind of a niche in the church. And in the Orthodox form of worship, there's a wall in the cave. The cave itself was turned into a church. So in that tiny little cave, there's a wall that would have had icons. And then behind the wall, there's an altar where this liturgy around the Eucharist, around communion, would have taken place back in the old church. Now, the new church dates to around the 5th century. So brand new, really, is what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a larger version of the cave. It's got the same style of Eastern Orthodox architecture. It's been renovated through the centuries, of course, so you wouldn't recognize it as something that happened in the 5th century. It is my absolute favorite place to visit in Israel-Palestine. Not only is it likely the place where this story happens, it actually feels like the place. Mm. And on top of that, you have this small remnant community of Christians worshiping there. These sisters and brothers in Christ are our direct link to the birth of the church and Pentecost. They're the descendants of those who thought that the gospel was worth too much for them to hoard, and so they shared it with the rest of the world.
You paint such a wonderful picture, Marthame, <laughs> of all, I see the map in my head. I'm absolutely excited about how we can see what you describe. And this story also brings into conversation around one, the response of the least of these and a caution of entitlement. Right. See, one has to think and wonder why the Samaritan was in the group to begin with. But we are reminded that persons with leprosy were also ostracized and left on the outskirts of society. See, now outcasts, I'm not sure if any of you know any outcasts, um, <laughs> but they're the people that society disproves of. So biblically, the outcasts were persons with incurable diseases or prostitutes or adulterers or tax collectors, the poor, um, even widows since women didn't have rights and if they were unprotected, then they could also be considered outcasts and placed outside of the auspices of society. Yet and still, the outcasts were cared for. Yeah. See, the scripture notes how even the lepers were brought food and were lowered to them into the reach. Remember, as you mentioned before earlier. But I imagine today that these lepers will be persons we have to put a mask on and maybe a hospital gown on mm. and coveralls to even encounter. Right. See, outcasts, most important, were not forgotten. In fact, they were not even quite hidden in plain sight. After all, when we see persons on the streets, we still see them even if we choose to look the other direction. The woman with the issue of blood was not allowed because of Leviticus law to enter into the community, but the entire community knew her problem. Right. See, even if they didn't know how to help, it's kind of like the same with the Samaritan woman, where at the well, it was known that she had all of these husbands or ex-husbands, yeah. and the person that she lived with currently but she still visited in the daytime and people knew she visited in the daytime even if they did not go out there with her. Right. Even the same like the man at the gate beautiful who was passed by every day, every single day, people would give alms and they gave alms with regularity. Mm -hmm. How often do we ourselves even look at or take into consideration what we feel we are entitled to because society has placed us in a different position? Right. How often are we defining a person based on their situation and not on their humanity? We bring these views with us to the table. See, now in the context of Burkean and this parallels to the story of the Lone Samaritan, it can help us refrain our way of seeing Christendom and hospitality, especially when it comes to our tables. If you're 0.2% of the people, would you dare be exclusive? Right. If there are a time where we can justify maybe having our own benign neglect, maybe when we think of how we worked for our own so others should too, even if they were impacted more by things they could not control. But then again, Marthame, does exclusion have anything to do with Jesus and the gospel? Right, no, it doesn't, right? Of course, it, it, it does make me think of, using that word exclusion though, makes me think of our title today, Table Manners. Mm -hmm. I, I think about how that ancient church in Burkina and, and really in Eastern Orthodoxy is the, the worship is centered not around the sermon or the preachers, it's centered around communion or the Eucharist. That's the whole point of the liturgy. Mm. It's the most important part of the service. And, and yet, communion, which we're going to celebrate today, is one of the times when the Christian church is most divided, mm. right? Right. Uh, if you don't abide by our narrow, very specific set of rules, you don't get to eat and drink with us. Mm. Now, I think we Protestants, as you and I share that Protestant uh, background, that we might tend to put that more on our, our Roman Catholic and Orthodox uh, siblings, that they're more restrictive. We're, we're more open. Our table's more open, but we have rules. We do. They're written, they're unwritten. Uh, uh, the Presbyterian Book of Order, for example, requires that people 
be baptized before receiving communion. That's not something Jesus required. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then we have cultural expectations about how people should look and dress and behave when they come to church, which sends signals both what I would call forthright and subtle at the same time that let them know whether they are truly welcome at our tables. And that reminds me, I think, of this, this whole thing about etiquette. See, I was raised in a family that paid attention to things like etiquette. We had copies of Emily Post's book. The famous story in our family is that my grandfather wanted to make sure that he got my mom's wedding right, and so he got Emily Post's book on etiquette, and he never got to weddings because he hadn't finished reading about funerals because that came first. That was, <laughs> there may have been a little OCD in the family that we haven't talked about before. But in any case, I have come since then to think of etiquette as a way to keep people out, hmm. there are these rules that, to me, seem to design a kind of a secret club of those who know and those who don't. Why so many forks on the table? Isn't one enough? What do I do with my elbows? And if I do the wrong thing, the people in that secret club, are they going to notice me and judge me, meaning that there's always going to be this inside and outside and that is what Jesus is trying to disrupt in all that he does. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And see, for me, this notion of etiquette brings up what we're calling table manners. It's not just washing your hands before dinner or keeping your elbows off or where to even place your napkin. See, I am an etiquette junkie. <laughs> I, whatever it is, I love reading about etiquette and the do's and don'ts and why people do what they do. I think I just like to know why people do what they do more than anything huh. else. But I absolutely love even reading through Emily Post and going to etiquette dinners and observing how different etiquette is across countries and cultures, right? So indeed, etiquette has been seen as an opportunity to interact sometimes with the elite. Right. But it can also be seen as adjustment of how someone learned or a mention of upbringing. Yet, what I love more than knowing about spoons and forks and knives and where the finger bowl goes <laughs> is what etiquette actually means. It is not just what and how to do. It is also about social interaction, how to be in relationship with one another, and also being open to others. It's about the care and respect of others. Have you ever picked up the wrong cup at the table? I just want to know where your cup is so I can leave it alone. Mm. <laughs> and there, of course, as we mentioned, are plenty of books about it. It's not actually meant to be secret knowledge. Emily Post, matter of fact, in her first edition of Etiquette writes, consideration for the rights and feelings of others is not merely a rule of behavior in public, but the very foundation upon which social life is built. The principles wow. are based. Can you say that again? That's okay. amazing. Sure, yeah. why not? <laughs> Consideration for the rights and feelings of others is not merely a rule of, for behavior in public, but the very foundation upon which social life is built. Wow. The principles that she highlights are based on respect, consideration, and honesty. I imagine Jesus probably didn't have a whole lot of patience for people making rules about who could be at the table, but he would have cared about how people relate to each other. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Similar to Christianity, etiquette has also been misinterpreted, though, as a weapon. Mm. Should it be an invitation? We've got to be clear about whose table it is anyway, right. because as soon as we think it's ours, then we're missing 
the point. The host is the one who sets the atmosphere for the dinner or the event. And if Jesus is the host, what manners then would we bring to Christ's table? Whether you have 17 forks in your hand or just the one, Christ is the host and sets what the etiquette is for how we treat people. Oh man, I love that idea of Jesus as the host. I mean, it also makes me think of the Catholic practice of the mass where that that the priest lifts the wafer and breaks it and it's Jesus that the bread is referred to as the host. So Jesus is the host of the meal. If Jesus is the host of the table, that completely changes everything. I think about uh, the church where my family and I attend most Sundays, the church you and I are both familiar with. It's a, it's a church that has prioritized unmitigated, unqualified welcome above everything else. Mm-hmm. And at that church, there is this core of young queer folk who have been told growing up in ways both forthright and subtle that the way they are mm-hmm. means that they're not welcome. And while I can see clearly now that that rejection that they have experienced growing up is due to human error and folly, dare we say sin, Mm -hmm. the humans who bear this message of exclusion say they are doing so in the name of God we know in Jesus. And that creates painful, deep, deep wounds. So each and every Sunday as my family and I are in worship, as these beautiful folks speak about the struggle they have had in learning to love themselves as they are, to love whom they love is the most natural thing in the world, to embrace their gender identities, to celebrate their skin color. I marvel at the beauty of that. It brings me to tears just about every week, and I grieve because it helps me come to terms with the fact that I, a cisgendered, as I've learned to say, heterosexual, white, property-owning man have never, not in my lifetime and not historically, never been told that who I am is not enough. And this may be strange, but bear with me. I, it, this, it reminds me of that old saying about giving a person a fish versus teaching them how to fish, where one, you feed the moment, the other, you feed a lifetime. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even think that change in the narrative gets to the core of it. There's a lot of other questions we need to answer. Uh, Who owns the pond? Mm -hmm. Who controls the access road to get to the pond in the first place? Who runs the bait shop? Who sets the prices on fishing supplies? Just knowing how to fish doesn't fix the problem. It's a bigger systemic question, and that to me is at the heart of Jesus' teaching. my own cishet white male property-owning identity. It's a mouthful, right? It means that I'm the one who owns the pond. Hmm. I'm the one who sells the fishing rods. I'm the one, as a child, who was taught those rules of etiquette. I'm the one who always has a place at the table. Which means that I have a say in how things are reshaped, I think. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that's true for a, a lot of us here, whether we recognize it or not, we can widen the table to make room for others. We can offer our seats to someone else, and even that's not enough because we're still acting like it's our table. We're still acting like we're the host, not, as you said, Jesus. It makes me think about how, even similar to how time and cultures change, Etiquette is revised. Hmm. 
There's even a new Emily Post book, not the one that she just originally wrote, um, that her estate actually updates regularly. The most recent was done in 2017. Understanding that how we care for people evolves. And at the core, we must still care for the humanity, the people. See, Jesus' interactions with the lepers was a new etiquette. The Samaritan thanking Jesus was a new etiquette. Let's think on the Samaritans some. The Samaritans were notably social outcasts, as we mentioned. In fact, we can recall several stories of those we serve. Christ mentions Jesus replied, weren't 10 made clean? Where are the other nine? Right. Was this foreigner? Not country person, not someone that we know, this foreigner, mm -hmm. the only one to return and praise God. It is as if to say that those who you say don't have manners have the most of all because the ability to praise and be in gratitude. See, the Samaritan was, would be considered to be the least of these, the minority of the group. But then in verse 19, Jesus says, get up and go, your faith has healed you because faith transcends all of the things that we list about how we identify ourselves. How often have we assumed that those in the minority and those who are outcasts have no faith at all? I've been preaching for a long time, but I'm often the least that people think of mm. when they see a preacher. Mm. We can learn so much about not only existing etiquette, but how to establish a new etiquette in this story. And today we take one step into the future. We observe communion, which was a new etiquette at the time. And at an already established table and feast, Christ brings elements together that were already on the table. Mm -hmm. Bread, and Elijah's cup, right. and the wine. Right. Christ reclaims the table and reappropriates the ritual. And so even with COVID, we are serving it different because of the respect and consideration of honesty of not wanting to get anybody infected if in case we don't even know that we have the disease. Mm -hmm. Our taking the bread and a grape is not probably what people have thought about when they were thinking about <laughs> communion. And I'm sure Christ is in a little bag. And I'm sure that Christ is laughing about the fact that we have reimagined even the ritual by doing that one little step. Right. Oh, I love that. I, there's this amazing ritual in the Eastern Orthodox liturgy, and it takes place behind that secret wall. They have this big piece. Of, it's even bigger than the bread that we have down here. It's this mm -hmm. big loaf. It's about this big. And the priest, when he takes it back behind the wall, excuse me, the iconostasis it's called, and takes it on the altar, he takes a knife that is shaped like a spear, a reference to Jesus being pierced in the side with the spear. And he takes a little piece of bread out of that big loaf, to represent Jesus. And then he puts it in the cup that has already been filled with wine and with water. Again, the symbolism of the water that flowed out of Jesus' side mm -hmm. mixed with the blood there in the cup. And throughout the liturgy, he goes on and he takes that knife and he cuts more pieces for the saints and the matriarchs and patriarchs of the faith, the angels, the apostles, and so on and so forth. So everyone before and after Jesus, kind of, in the biblical sense of that, that story. And then 
members of the congregation come forward to whisper their prayer requests to him. And as they do, he cuts pieces of bread for those mm. and puts them in a cup. And it's mixed together in this chalice of bread and wine substance. It's not something that we're going to do today. But what happens is the priest then, as everyone comes forward to receive, takes a spoon. Now, this is really fascinating to me. The spoon represents the tongs of God that took a piece of coal and touched Isaiah's lips. This is a deep biblical cut here and says, uh, now you may speak. You've been in the presence of God. You are made clean. So he takes this spoon and he feeds each person that comes forward a spoonful of this mixture. So whatever we might think about that in terms of the actual way of doing communion, mm -hmm. it's this act of remembrance that this is an act of faith that mm -hmm. ties us all together. It's this vast expanse of God's work throughout history, up through Christ, through those little pieces of bread. Even in today, as we share life together and as people mm -hmm. bring their joys and sorrows together, we share those. We take all of this physically into ourselves as we are knit together in a way that disintegrates that wall of exclusion far beyond whatever we are able to do ourselves. Mm -hmm.